When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please support the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the ancient world. Thanks again for listening. You know, for a son of a nobody, King Hazael of Aram Damascus certainly got around. Or, at the very least, his inscriptions did. One was found on a horse's cheek piece at the temple of Apollo Daphne Phoros in Eretria Eubea, while another was found on a horse's nose piece recovered from the temple of Hera on the island of Samos. Both were likely carried abroad sometime after the fall of Damascus by Greek or Phoenician traders. The second piece is particularly striking. I'll post a picture online. It depicts a male figure standing on a lion head holding aloft two other lion heads. Three nude female figures stand above holding their breasts one atop the male figure's head, the other two on the upraised lion heads, with a winged sun disc hovering over the scene, which, in my opinion, is a lot of attention to pay to a horse's nose. According to historian K. Lawson Yunker Jr., both pieces hold an identical text, stating, that which Hadad gave our Lord Hazael from Umk in the year that our Lord crossed the river. He quotes historian Alan Millard that the inscriptions are likely celebratory notices marking booty as the gift of the god Hadad to Hazael following an incursion across the Orontes River into the kingdom of Unki or Paton. In other words, Hazael looted the pieces from Paton and later had them inscribed. The time frame for the attack on Patton is very likely sometime after the Assyrian intervention led by Dayan Assur in 831 BC, the intervention that put King Sassi on the throne. This had been the final time that the Assyrian army crossed into northern Syria. By then, it had already been seven years since Hazael had fought Shalmaneser. In fact, by the time Shalmaneser died in 824, Hazael hadn't seen a single Assyrian soldier for going on 14 years. 
which, as you're probably not surprised to hear, had been a very, very busy time for our King Hazael. Unlike his Syrian predecessors, like Ahuni, Urahalina, or Hadad Azer, Hazael apparently preferred to go it alone. The most generous interpretation you could apply is that Hazael wanted to increase the power of Aram Damascus as a defensive counterweight to Neo-Assyria. But it's just as likely that he wanted to increase the size, wealth, and power of his kingdom to aggrandize himself and his god, Hadad, which would not be at all out of line with the general thrust of the region. Apart from getting that sassy booty, sorry, I couldn't resist, Hazael was mainly focused on his southern neighbors, particularly Israel and Judah. And considering that he likely inaugurated his reign by killing the rulers of both Jewish kingdoms, that focus isn't too surprising. In the absence of our chatty friend Shalmaneser, we're forced to rely on other sources to track the events of Hazael's reign, mainly the biblical account and archaeology, which in this case, kind of surprisingly, actually tend to agree. The biblical entries are reasonably brief. According to 2 Kings 12, verses 17 and 18, Then Hazael king of Syria went up and fought against Gath and took it. And Hazael set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Jehoash king of Judah took all the hallowed things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own hallowed things, and all the gold that was found in the treasures of the house of the Lord and in the king's house, and sent it to Hazael king of Syria. And Hazael went away from Jerusalem. So, first off, dude's got range. The horse inscriptions have him up in Patton, far to the north of Damascus, while the biblical account has him way down in Gath, approaching the border with Egypt. And, as far as we can tell, all these events happened a few years on either side of 830 BC, which suggests that these places were specifically targeted likely because they were wealthy, disorganized, militarily weak, or served some critical role. In the case of Patton, Hazael struck in the immediate aftermath of the death of two kings and the installation of an Assyrian vassal. So his successful attack was likely facilitated by the kingdom's destabilization. But jumping back to the south, what do we know about Gath in this period? The answer is actually quite a bit. For a quick recap, Gath had been founded three centuries earlier by the pharaoh Ramesses III, as one of five cities where he'd settled the defeated sea peoples known as the Peleset. Ramesses intended for the Peleset, or Philistines, to serve as a buffer state on Egypt's border to prevent more northern invasions. From their material culture, we know that the Philistines likely came from the Aegean, another batch of Mycenaean Greek remnants, like those in the Syrian shoulder. And like their cousins up north, they proved themselves both militarily strong and supremely adaptable, 
In a surprisingly short time, their material, culture, language, and even their gods were swapped for Canaanite equivalents. They also knew metallurgy, and as I noted before, when the neighboring Israelites wanted metal weapons, they were forced to buy them from the Philistines. Gath in particular is likely most famous as the home of the enormous warrior Goliath whom David supposedly killed with a well-placed slingstone. The Philistine Pentapolis, the origin of the term Palestine, eventually became home to dozens of cities and villages. Historian Abraham Faust notes that out of the 22 excavated sites that existed in Philistia during the late Iron I period, up through the early 10th century BC, Fourteen were abandoned altogether during the subsequent Iron II period. Of the five main cities of the Philistine Pentapolis, Ekron, and probably also Ashkelon, declined in size and importance. Gath, by contrast, grew in size, as perhaps Ashdod did. This is interesting to me because Ashdod was targeted by the pharaoh Siamun early the previous century as I covered in episode C-12, which may have left Gath as the preeminent city of Philistia. In fact, historian Yigal Levin notes that excavation has shown that Gath's size and density both reached their peak around 830 BC. In a recent paper, historians Erez ben Yosef and Omer Sergi highlight that the city's massive fortifications and clear material wealth reflected its regional prominence. These scholars also note that the Gittite economy was increasingly integrated with that of their wealthy northern coastal neighbors, the Phoenicians. Another aspect of contemporary Gath was its ties to copper production. Ben Yosef and Sergi argue that, at the time, Gath may have been the main economic center monitoring and controlling the trade of Araba copper. These are the mines, like Phanon and Timna, likely worked by nomadic Edomites. The copper produced made its way not just to Egypt, Canaan, and northern Syria, but as far afield as the Aegean islands and even mainland Greece. The authors point toward Gath's connections to coastal ports on the Mediterranean, as well as inland routes to Judah and Israel, to suggest a central role in the Araba copper trade. In fact, Shoshank's campaign of the late 10th century may have elevated Gath to just such a role, at least the part that ensured the supplying of Egypt. So, Gath was a rich and powerful target. But was that all? The answer is likely no. At the time, there were two main regional copper sources, the Arab Valley south of the Dead Sea and the island of Cyprus, its very name derived from the word copper. Cypriot copper arrived in Syria via Phoenician ports, and then as now, Damascus played an oversized role in Levantine coastal affairs, particularly in the absence of Neo-Assyria. So Hazael had significant control over the copper arriving from Cyprus. But you know what would grant him even more leverage? Destroying his main competitor, 
there are some very strong arguments that support this theory, which I'll return to in a bit. But first, let's focus on a major event, the Siege of Philistine Gath. Ben Yosef and Sergei discuss the impressive siege system detected around the site, which is associated with Hazael's attack on Gath. The siege system is particularly noticeable as a trench and berm on the eastern, southern, and western sides of the city. The trench itself, around 2.5 kilometers long, was dug into the bedrock to a depth of around 5 meters. The materials from the trench were consistently piled up on the side away from the city, forming a berm or embankment. At least two towers were associated with the trench and berm. They continue that the extensive logistical efforts required to construct such a siege system, including the monumental siege trench, would have required the work of thousands of people for several months. In addition to the labor force, the manpower involved in the effort would have also required a substantial number of combatants. The evidence further suggests that the siege system was meant to endure a prolonged battle whose outcome was well planned in advance. The authors highlight that the sophisticated logistical and technological measures employed in the siege are far beyond the common practice in the warfare of the period. Such siege warfare was only rarely employed, and no similar siege trenches are recorded in the region. The conquest of Gath was clearly a priority, and with his siege works in place, Hazael prevented the city's defenders from escaping or receiving supplies. But there's recent archaeological evidence that they didn't go down without a fight. An article by journalist Ariel David relates that inside a home in the lower city, researchers discovered an arrow point made of animal bones. Earlier researchers at Gath had uncovered a workshop in the nearby upper city that appeared to be entirely dedicated to the manufacture of bone implements, mainly from the lower limbs of domestic cattle. The prevailing theory is that the defenders used bone because they were short of raw materials to make metal weapons. Given the limited effectiveness of bone arrowheads against soldiers with metal armor, it's theorized, though still unproven, that the arrows may have been dipped in poison. As brave and innovative as the Gittites may have been, their cause was entirely hopeless. In the context of the earlier biblical quote regarding Jerusalem, we know that if the victorious Hazael had wanted tribute, it was his for the asking. If he wanted control, he could also have that. If he wanted a massive fortified city to use as a base for threatening Jerusalem, he also had that option. So it's significant that when Hazael captured the city of Gath, he put the whole thing to the torch. In the aftermath, the destroyed city was left abandoned for decades, and even dead bodies were left unburied at the site. Ben Yosef and Sergei proposed that Hazael intended to leave the city of Gath in its ruins as a symbol of his power. 
I mentioned earlier that there were strong arguments for the theory that Hazael wanted to destroy Gath due to its critical role in the Araba copper trade. Well, here's the evidence. Per Ben Yosef and Sergi, in the wake of Gath's destruction, Araba copper production ground to a halt. Literally, from massive to zero, practically overnight. And, as if that weren't enough, it wouldn't resume for centuries. The most likely explanation is that, cut off from their main markets in the Levant, the Edomite nomads who mined the copper decided to reorient their economy toward other activities. Historian Asaf Kleiman notes that Hazael not only destroyed Gath, but also Michal and Afek between Gath and the coast other possible links in the southern copper trade. At the very same time, radiocarbon data available from Cypriot copper mining and smelting sites show that metal production on Cyprus greatly intensified. As Ben Yosef and Sergei note, this correlation probably indicates that Cyprus replaced the Araba as the major source for Levantine copper as early as the last third of the 9th century BC. In other words, Cypriot re-monopolization of copper production and trade may be seen as a direct result of the end of copper production in the Araba. All due to the destruction of Gath by King Hazael of Aram Damascus. They also note that, since Egypt was dependent on Araba copper, the attack also sent a pretty clear message as to who they now had to deal with. So, wow, that was a lot more about Gath than I originally intended to cover. But it was just too interesting to pass up. Regarding Jerusalem, just to the east, we already got the biblical upshot. Abject surrender, massive tribute, and detailed directions to Samaria. The one thing I'll mention is that the current Judahite monarch, Jehoash, was the grandson of the previous ruler, Queen Athaliah, and was therefore also descended from Omri of Israel. Also, he was only like 14 years old when Hazael came calling, so I guess we can cut him some slack. Continuing along their merry way, Hazael's army next approached the Israelite capital of Samaria. There are a few more relevant Bible verses, also from 2 Kings. In those days, the Lord began to trim off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward. Which kind of provides the general landscape, but let's dig into the details. The king of Israel was still Jehu, possible killer of Judahite and Israelite kings, runner over of Queen Jezebel, and killer of everyone he could get his hands on from the previous house of Omri. Back in episode C-17, I mentioned a theory proposed by historian Philip Capek that Jehu was textually severed from the Omrides to better contrast his piety to their blasphemy, but that he was actually, as the Assyrians recorded, a member of Omri's family. Capek proposed that Jehu may have descended from a brother of Omri named Nimshi, 
which means that despite their recent extremely bloody efforts, both Jewish kingdoms were still ruled by branches of the Omride family tree. I also mentioned that the likely hometown of the Nimshi branch of the Omride dynasty was the nearby B-centric city of Tel Rahav. By 830 BC, Tel Rahav was one of the largest and most prosperous cities in northern Canaan, which made sense considering its cozy ties with the current Israelite king. And if I may craft a scene, the way I see things going is a little like this. Hazael arrives at the walls of Samaria and summons King Jehu for a chat. They probably start off with some common ground. Hey, do you remember when I killed the kings of Israel and Judah? Wait, I thought I killed the kings of Israel and Judah. And they both have a good laugh. And then Hazael raises the uncomfortable topic of the repeated Israelite invasions of Ramoth-Gilead, which Jehu likely pins on the previous regime. Mistakes were made, very new broom, all that good stuff. But still, says Hazael, in addition to all the tribute you'll be giving me, and make no mistake, you will be giving me a massive haul of tribute, I wanted to leave a more concrete reminder of just who's in charge of this region. So, if you'll direct your attention off to the northeast, you see that lovely billowing plume of smoke? Yeah, that's your former hometown of Tel Rahal. According to historian Amihai Mazar, at around this time, again, a few years to either side of 830 BC, the thriving city of Tel Rahav was completely, utterly destroyed. And scholars agree that Hazael is by far the most likely culprit. Mazar notes that in its intensity and totality, the fierce destruction resembles the destruction of Gath. He also suggests that the reason to destroy this particular city so violently was its status as one of the most important cities in northern Israel and the hometown of the new Israelite dynasty. As a minor detour for those of you who are biblically minded, the prophet Elisha supposedly sanctioned the rise of both King Hazael and King Jehu by personally anointing both monarchs which is a bit weird in Hazael's case, but just go with it. Among the remains of a destroyed building in Tel Rahav, archaeologists uncovered an ostracon with the name Lys, or Elisha, in large red letters. Taken with altars and cultic items found nearby, historians Nava Panitz-Cohen and Amihai Mazar very tentatively proposed that this building may have been where Elisha received pilgrims and where local rituals and feasts were held in his honor. All of which was now very much past tense. Kleiman notes that like with Gath, Hazael also destroyed a cluster of ancillary targets, including Tel Amal, Tel Elhama, and our old friend Beth Shean, where two large buildings unearthed in the southeastern sector of the mound were clearly destroyed by fire. In fact, excavations at cities in Israel, Jordan, and the occupied West Bank have identified dozens of roughly contemporary destruction layers.
And while some were likely from before or after Hazael's 40-plus year reign, many others were likely his doing. Clyman proposes an Aramean assault in three main stages. First, the localized conflict over Ramoth-Gilead, then annexation of various northern territories of the Kingdom of Israel, extending the Damascene border to the south, and finally, campaigns to the more remote southern Canaan. The destruction of Tel Rahav and Beth Shean, along with the cities of Hazor and Megiddo, likely occurred in the second phase. Once he securely controlled these areas, Hazael allowed some local urban centers and political entities to recover and thrive under his rule. As an example, Ben Yosef and Sergi note that after the destruction of Israelite Hazor, the town was immediately restored and rebuilt, albeit on a totally different plan. Even Tel Rahav was eventually reanimated though at only half its size and a fraction of its former prosperity. Though archaeological evidence is lacking, Ben Yosef and Sergi also suggest that, at roughly the same time as Judah and Israel, Hazael probably also subjugated the Transjordanian kingdoms of Ammon and Moab. Which meant that, in a practical sense, King Hazael of Aram Damascus effectively controlled all of southern Syria and Canaan. He'd likely subjugated most territories by the early 820s BC, and they remained in his control for the following two decades. For all intents and purposes, Hazael's Aramean Empire was basically a mini-Assyrian empire just one that was dedicated to Hadad instead of to Assur. Of course, there was still an actual Assyrian empire smothered in radio silence off to the east, and it's likely that Hazael did his best to keep abreast of developments. It's possible he learned in 824 of the death of Shalmaneser III, but it's maybe more likely that little came west before around 820 BC, because that was the year that the seven-year-long Assyrian civil war finally ended, with the death of Assur Paul and the victory of his younger brother, the new Assyrian king Shamshi-Adad V. Ancient World Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.